Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Frets. And as you tuned in on Monday, Charlie Hunter is our guest this week, and I'm joined by my co-host Joe Gore. Hi, everybody, and um, boy, we're having fun with Charlie this week. What a great guy! Oh, he's he's so great to talk to. And today's episode is going to be focused on kind of his career as a sideman, which I know even Charlie alluded to in the episode. Joe, you have quite a bit of experience uh, with as well. Well, it's you know my stuff was. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, you know, Charlie's work as a sideman was mostly after he was established as a player. Yeah. And, uh, you know, artists brought him in because they wanted him, they found his thing so beautiful that they, 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 you know, brought it in and had him do it. So for a lot of session work, you know, maybe somebody's recommended you or maybe somebody liked a record you played on. And, you know, you come in and, you know, take direction and try and find out what, suits the occasion, what the artist and the producer are looking for, blah, blah, blah. But in, you know, in Charlie's fortunate case, it was like, dude, your thing is beautiful coming in and lend it to the record. And that was one thing that I uh, was covered in, in another podcast I produced, was Corey Wong's podcast, was the difference between people calling you to kind of do your thing or people calling you because they need guitar on a record. You yeah, know? It, it, that's you said what I was trying to say in... A lot more economically. <laughs> and Charlie's thoughts on that were super interesting. We also kind of veer off into the studio scene kind of at large a bit in this episode. But that, to me, is is an important distinction. I wish there's kind of a better name for it than Sideman. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, but know. also, you know, particular interest is, the, you know, he, he played on D'Angelo's Voodoo. And yeah. often the guitar communities and hip-hop communities do not overlap a great deal. Mm-mm. But... Uh, Voodoo was a really important record in terms of bringing, um, you know, live instruments and real-time playing, yeah. you know, in, into hip-hop when it came out, aside from being just a great record. So that's kind of a piece of history. Yeah, it, it, it totally is. He even, he even joked about the payment situation behind those sessions. <laughs> he got more, more acclaim than money, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we hope you enjoy this episode, uh, and we'll get right to it. So here's our conversation with Charlie Hunter. So Charlie, when, um, in addition to all the records you've done as a as a leader, you've had some pretty prestigious credits on sort of pop and R and B records, and um, I'd be curious to hear about what some of those experiences were like. Oh, okay. Um, well, wh- do you have any in particular? I was just looking at your discography. Are there, are there, are there any particular ones that are most memorable to you, or that people ask you about the most? I mean, I think the ones people ask me about the most are the Voodoo one uh, with D'Angelo and the one with John Mayer, because those are such big stars, you know? Uh, I mean, the D'Angelo thing was a trip. I mean, he just called me because he saw me on BET, 
back in the mid nineties, uh, because BET had a thing they did bet on jazz and they didn't have, they were making content, but they just didn't have enough content. So if you were lucky enough to be their content, they just played you all the time. So I think that he saw me late night or something and he was intrigued. And so I went down to electric Ladylands and played with him. Um, it was pretty damn cool, you know. I mean, but it was also not life changing at the time. It was just in the middle of a tour, and I was there a couple of days, and then I rejoined the tour, and I didn't hear about it for another three or four years, you know. Well, I remember when that record came out, and it was a, it was a, I mean, aside from being a great record and a very beautiful record, it was a, it was a real trendsetter. It was, you know, at that point, you know, hip hop seemed to be transitioning towards using a lot more live instruments, and. At that prior to that, I can't think of a more guitar intensive hip hop record. And, you know, I mean, I guess the roots were around, but they weren't as well known as they were today. And people weren't necessarily thinking of hip hop as a, you know, a, a real time playing, you know, genre. Yeah. But yeah, I think so. And I think that that record was, I mean, you know, I was so not in that world at when it came out. But I think, you know, what I notice is a lot of people who are in their 30s it's a very important record for them, you know? Um, and, and you know how it is with your musical evolution, you know, you hear what you hear and, and it's important, you know, to you, regardless of what it is. And okay. So people ask Max Roach about, uh, you know, saxophone Colossus, which is just this inc by Sonny Rollins, which he was on, which is kind of like one of the, you know, heaviest records kind of in the jazz canon, so to speak. And, um, They've, you know, oh, but this is one of the most amazing drum records ever recorded. What can you tell us about it? And Max Roach was just like, well, I don't know. We went in at noon and we left at three. I mean, I don't know. We were doing that all the time, you know. And that's kind of the. I mean, it's not that extreme for me, but but it definitely was like, okay, that was one thing in a very kind of busy year, you know. And I was thankful to have the work, honestly, you know. Um, I wish that I had gotten paid for it, but that's another that's another discussion altogether. Um, <laughs> when somebody calls you as a sideman, since your voice and style are is so defined, how do you view your role as a sideman? Do you come in knowing that they want the Charlie Hunter thing, or are you trying to find a way separate, kind of from your known identity, to fit into their vision? Uh, well, I mean, I figure if they call me, they've already made their first mistake. You know what I mean? So after that, it's just like, well, I can't do too much. I mean, I'm actually a good uh, bass player and guitar player. Like I've done quite a few recordings on those instruments that, and it's much easier because it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's ready made. Whereas my instrument is this, and the way I play it, it's just this weird thing that's kind of, it's more of a live thing than anything else. And, and um, I guess if people want it, they want that thing. So I just try to play as good as I can, honestly, you know, and not get too in the way or try too hard, you know. You know, maybe sideman wasn't the right term for us to use because, you know, a lot of times what, you know, when you get a call to play on something, it's somebody gave the artist your name and said, oh, this person can play, or somebody says, oh, this person can do interesting things, see if they can come in and add anything. But it seems like in most of these cases, the artist knew quite well who you were and wanted you to come in and, and be Charlie Hunter, not 
play this little line I have in my head. I'll sing it for you. Yeah, they wanted that vibe, which which was cool, you know, and it was a challenge for me. And with John Mayer, he just he used to come to my shows when he was younger and, and um, has always been real nice and kind of supportive. And so he had me on his on his that record. Um, and uh, and that was fun, too. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's all it's all pretty fun. But I think you're right, uh, Joe. I think it's just like, yeah, if you do a certain thing. Uh, people are going to want to call you for it. But, you know, the thing, you know, if they call somebody like Bill Frizzell, I mean, that's Bill Frizzell, you're going to get um, his vibe. But his vibe is 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 a lot more um, uh, versatile than mine in terms of if you're going to call someone. And also he's fucking Bill Frizzell, you know, he's fantastic. But if you're going to call somebody, because he's not, you know, if you're going to call somebody like me, potentially it's taking up so much bandwidth that it's a real risk you know and and um and a lot of the people that are making those kinds of big records generally tend to be pretty risk averse and i can i get it man you know you're especially back in the day you're spending a lot of money on studio time and all this other stuff you know take a chance on some weird guy weird guy and his weird instrument instead of calling a bass player and a guitar player or whatever that's that's definitely a, a leap of faith, you know. These days, you mostly don't play in ensembles with multiple guitars. Though, of course, a lot of people first became acquainted with your playing when you were in, in T.J. Kirk with uh, John Schott and Will Bernard. But um, with the John Mayer record, you know, he's quite an accomplished player. What was it? How did it affect the equation that you're a foil to it to another formidable guitarist? Oh, I don't mind, man. I just will support and just try to stay out of the way really you know um i honestly don't enjoy guitar solos that much if i can be totally honest it's a little bit goes a long way it's like salt how much salt do you want to eat you know what i mean so for me the joy comes in kind of directing the groove and playing in that role and occasionally i'll definitely like to throw a right hook or a jab or something like that um but for the most part you know i i just don't i don't need to have that kind of thing and and also i i just you know as we all know we just have so many friends that are damn good at that too and they love to do it you know so i'll let them do that you know there are a a couple more uh appearances you made on records that i want to ask you about and the first one was about on the the pat martino both sides now tell me what that experience was like for you i mean that was great because i was such a fan of pat's um you know the the record um what's that record called desperado where he's playing that you guys know that record he's playing a 12 string electric with but it's not octaves it's doubled all the strings are doubled i have no idea how that guitar stayed in tune or even st- i mean it must have had like a, a train like a, a a railroad like tie for a for a truss rod you know <laughs> Also, it must have had a special bridge because yeah, right. I didn't even think about that. Two, two, two sixth strings together. Take a pull out. How do you? You have to put them a quarter inch apart so they don't whack into exactly, each other. Exactly right. Totally. So you know, I got into the him on. I discovered that record. I was like, holy fuck, what is this? You know, and then I got really into his playing and and um, checked out his whole thing and kind of became a fan. And because I was on Blue Note at the time, they hooked me and uh, Scott Amendola up with him, and that was. I mean, it was a blast. We played like a Stevie Wonder tune, and we recorded it with the guy Malcolm Cecil, who actually recorded Stevie Wonder doing that song, which was pretty damn cool. I mean, this has got to be going back 25 years or something like that, you know? 
So to wrap up this uh, this episode today, Charlie, if somebody wanted to really now, admittedly, like we covered before, people call you for kind of your own thing, you know. But what's some advice you could give to uh, a younger musician who wants to make a career more as a as a as a side person uh, on playing on other records? Well, I mean that's such a hard one. It's hard to be encouraging because the landscape is has changed so much um not encouraging that's the wrong word it's it's hard to have any specific strategy because the landscape is changing so much but what i do notice um with a lot of the younger musicians i know who are successful in that universe um and by younger i mean you know people in their 30s um they're not just bass players uh they're bass players that also can arrange for an orchestra on Sibelius. Uh, they're bass players that also have a complete working knowledge of, of Pro Tools and miking and everything else. Um, they're bass players that can also sing. Um, or they're bass players like my friend Louis Cato who can play the living shit out of a drum set. And also guitar and tuba and trombone and sing. You know what I mean? It's like this whole, I think the idea of kind of like the virtuoso session guitar player, bass player, drummer who gets all the work. That's, that's not, uh, I don't, I don't think that's as, as much of a, of an archetype as, as it once was, but I would say to just, just really work your ass off. Um, and you know, I wouldn't really know how to do that. I just know if you generally, what I feel happens is you people, I mean, Joe Joe Gore could tell you probably better than I could because he spent a lot more time in that universe than I have. You know. Well, what I tell what I tell people is this: you know, um, session player doesn't really exist as a career anymore in the in the sense that it did twenty or thirty years yeah. ago. There's a there's a, there's two or three four people who do make a living doing that. Mostly the people who play like the big orchestral film score sessions in Hollywood. And I guess I guess and I, I guess Nashville is a special exception because Nashville is sort of a throwback to the old days where you had your first call A list mm-hmm. players, but that's generally not how the business works anymore. You know, it just uh, it's I just would second what 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 Charlie says. It's it's really an era where you know where diversification counts, where the more the the more skills you have, the more ability to record and produce on your own, the more ability you have to perceive the larger picture outside of, um, you know, your little part. Uh, it's just a different mindset, and that old that old kind of hot, you know, Top Gun, A list session player. I won't name the names, but you know the famous players from Legend. It's just not how the industry works anymore, and it's it's not to say a discouraging word, but it's kind of not a realistic career goal in a sense, or or to get there. It can be kind of, I think, part of a career goal or one one facet. Yeah. But I think the days of sitting at home and waiting for people to call you for you know for two sessions a day because you're so hot. Um, yeah, I is, I, is I totally I think that hits the nail on the head. And I mean, another thing I would also say is that people are generally it's generally about relationships now, you know, um, and 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 like genuine relationships. If if a producer really likes what you're doing and likes your vibe, then you create, you get a relationship with that person. That's what I see happening with a lot of my friends, but also, you know, it's not the studio scene is like, it's, it's your a bedroom in your house. Now it's not going down to avatar and spending the day there working on 
like you know a Pat Benatar record. It do, that doesn't exist so much anymore. Um, and I know that Joe and I both know, and I'm sure Jason, you know as well, all the top people that do this. And you'll hear them talking about how little little work there is these days. I hear a lot. I do know. I literally do know people who were you know commanding triple scale, you know, twenty years ago who were playing fifty dollar demos today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a it's a hell Not of a that thing. that's a bad thing, but. You need a different view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a music hustle. It's a hell of a hustle. There's so many different things you can do as a musician, and I think you just have to go into it, training the living shit out of yourself, playing with people better than you, and trying to figure out what your genuine thing is that is really something you have an affinity for and that you're good at and that you really love, so that. It's it's already hard enough to do this thing. You have to love it, and you have to feel a real calling for it. So, I mean, a lot of people I know who were these insane jazz musicians in their early 20s that were just playing circles around me, they don't do that anymore. Yeah, see, you have someone who play in a rock band now, or, or they're you know doing music for a play, or they're playing on Broadway. I mean, you just have to be ready for it to just take so many different shapes and you you really never know what it what's coming down the pike and that's the best thing about it and the worst thing about it you know well thank you so much charlie for joining us today uh we're thank gonna have, you we're gonna be back one more time this week uh, with charlie so uh stick around and we'll see you guys on friday